And with that dramatic ending, welcome to Center Church. I'm excited that you're here. My name is John. I'm the pastor here. And uh, I'm just so excited. I just want to say this from up front. I'm just pumped that it's sunny outside and that it's like above 50s. Like I'm just, I'm grateful. I'm not going to complain anymore. I'm just good uh, that summer at least is appearing to show up. And so I'm glad that you're here. Hopefully, hopefully you in the almost summer are having a couple good days of sun and, and rest outside. And maybe you're just wrapping up school and you're like, I can't wait. Or maybe your kids are wrapping up school and you're like, oh no, it's summer. This is happening already. It's crazy to, to think that we're already here. We're starting a brand new series, but uh, one of the things I've observed over the, the last couple weeks as we've had some good sunny days is a lot more dog walkers than I do when it's February. I don't know about you. Maybe you have a dog and it's just like, oh, finally, I can, I can walk Toto around when it's like sunny and nice. And, and I can do those things that bring me joy rather than having to walk the dog in the middle of January, in the middle of a blizzard. Uh, we, Lindsay and I recently were up in Traverse City running together and, and almost every couple miles there was a really cute dog. And uh, she calls them doggos. There was cute doggos everywhere. And so these doggos every time had a way of stopping the run. And, and Lindsay would go up and meet them and, and shake their hand and, and get their name and collect their information. And then they'd, and we'd keep running and move along. And her family breeds golden retrievers. So she is a dog person through and through. Now, when we got married, I had to kind of wrestle with the fact that my history in my family is not very dog friendly. So we had dogs, but we weren't necessarily good dog owners. You know the difference, right? Like you can have a dog and then be a good dog owner. We, we had some dogs. So when I was like one, one or two years old, uh, we had a, a big English sheep dog. And we eventually had to get rid of it because I would ride it and pull its hair out as I was riding it. My parents said, finally, we've had enough. We're going to get rid of it. So when we moved from Alabama, we got rid of said dog. But fast forward to middle school, almost going into high school, we got another dog. We lived right out here in Caledonia, had a lot more space. And so we got a little Bichon free name, Whitby. Now Whitby was cute, but Whitney was a, a menace, okay? Like this dog, it doesn't matter how you trained it, would just run at any possible moment. It doesn't matter if you fed him, which we did. Didn't matter if you played with him, which we did. Didn't matter if we gave him a nice kennel, a nice place to sleep, which we did. Every single opportunity Whitby had to go, he was gone. Like, and so one day in panic, my mom kind of rushed into the dining room where uh, me and my brothers are sitting having lunch. She said, Whippy's gone. And I was like, well, duh. Like he probably was the open door. Like, of course he's gone. He, he, did, he hates us for whatever reason. I don't know what we did to him, but he is not a fan of the Gorvet household. And so we look over this back fenced-in area in which we often kept him in during the day and would hang out and throw the ball, whatever and he was gone. And so uh, because I'm a detective at heart, I started to walk around and walk, walk the perimeter. Like, where did Whitby get away? Like, we have to prevent this from happening in the future if we ever find little Whitby. And so I look, and right in the corner of the fence, and you know this if you're a dog owner, what did I find? I found a hole. I found just a little hole that over time he'd kept digging and eventually had penetrated this incredible white picket fence, this wall that we'd created for him to not break through. And so my brothers and I, very Goonie style, hop on our BMX bikes and we start riding through the neighborhood trying to find Whippy. We're calling his name, Whippy, where are you? We're calling him out. We don't see him until I see this white fur ball just 
dashing across like a cheetah chasing a gazelle, like straight across the field, across from our neighbor's yard. And then I was like, he's there. And so we all bike over, we eventually catch him. He like rolls over and acts like nothing ever happened. And we cradled him in, his, in our arms and we were crying and weeping. But it, it, the first thing we did when we get back was secure that wall. Like the very first thing we did was we went back to that fence and found all the plywood we can and just like stacked it up and nailed it to one another. And it looked like some kind of weird fortress had been built up in this corner, but we did not want Whitby, Whitby to get away again. Like the wall was, he had somehow broken through it. And, and you probably have situations in your life that feel a little bit like those picket fences. Like the things that were supposed to be secure and keep you safe and keep you connected and keep you connected to resources which Whitby had inside of this beautiful fence, they get torn down or there's holes in them or they start to leak a little bit or they're not as strong as they once were. And when walls get torn down in our life, it leaves us vulnerable, it leaves us unprotected, and often leads uh, a lot of trouble. Uh, invaders, uh, whether it's sin or temptation or brokenness, into our lives as well. And Whippy didn't know it, but there was a wide world waiting to snatch him up out there. And that wall was keeping him safe from said world. But you know what it's like to have a wall torn down in your life. Maybe you've lost a job before, and that wall of security just vanishes overnight. And the, the two weeks he had leading up to that process or the severance package, it might have been nice, but it didn't replace the feeling of security that a normal, steady job gives you. And then maybe for you, it's living year on year with uncertain callings, a future that you're not really sure, what am I supposed to do with my life? Maybe you're in your 30s and 40s and you're like, I still don't really know what I'm supposed to do with, with my life. It's an unanswered question. And the wall of confidence, the wall of purpose seems to be torn down in the midst of that waiting, in the midst of that emptiness. And maybe for you as well, you've been through the ugliness of divorce or an affair or adultery or brokenness in a relationship with somebody and the wall of intimacy and trust just gets ripped down, sometimes overnight. And the walls that you had built up, the trust that you'd built up over time just seems to be destroyed. Now, when those happen, we're not... I mean, easy fixes, quick answers, none of those things really help us because what walls, when they get torn down in our life, do is create anxiety within us. They create worry within us. They create mistrust within us. They create anger. There's, there's stress. There's all sorts of internal layers when walls get torn down. I want to wrestle with the question today and even over these next couple of weeks of how do we rebuild if God intends us to have walls of, of trust, walls of confidence in him, walls of, of righteousness and holy living and walls of love and compassion for other people, when those get torn down, how do we rebuild? How do we restart? How do we get God's perspective on some of those broken situations and, and build the wall again? And so I know it's hard for you to picture a nation in which the wall is torn down and there's a lot of controversy about building a wall, but just pretend, okay? Just pretend we are in a country where that would possibly take place and you are exactly where Nehemiah was in chapter one. You're in the, he is in the midst of a torn down, broken wall situation. And if you're uh, tracking with us in this series, we're going to study this guy, the entire series named Nehemiah. Now, Nehemiah was an ordinary person Nehemiah had regular issues just like you and me. Nehemiah had to put gas in the camel or in the car, or however that worked in first century Israel. But Nehemiah was like you and I in the sense of he wasn't necessarily special. 
Nehemiah is in government, but he's not the king. Nehemiah had some influence, but not a lot. But Nehemiah did something incredible in response to a broken wall. And I want you to look with me in Nehemiah 1, and starting in verse 1, here's what we read. It'll be on the screen as well. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Now, if you're a highlighter, underliner, circle that city, Jerusalem. It's important. We're going to go back to it in a minute. Verse 3, they said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. I think it's really interesting. We're going to continue in the chapter, but I want to pause there. Now again, Nehemiah wasn't necessarily a special person. Nehemiah is in the city of Susa, which is around a thousand miles away from Jerusalem. And if you're like me, you Google Maps stuff to kind of figure out context. And so real quick, here's kind of a picture of where we're talking about. So Susa or Shusha, that is so hard to say, Susa or Shush, as it is now called in modern day Iraq, is nearly a thousand, you see it, 964 miles down through the West Bank into Jerusalem, the capital city. It's a long way. So you may ask the question, why does Nehemiah care about the walls in Jerusalem, right? He's in the citadel, which means their city is intact. He's in a government position. He's important. He's protected. He's in the court of the king. But Nehemiah grew up as an Israelite. These people were close to his heart. He had brothers and sisters and family back in Israel. He cared about the, stat, the status of this place. And when a wall is torn down in this kind of environment, this kind of culture, a lot of things happen. Number one, your religious center is threatened. And it's hard for us to picture in America what it would be like to have this place of worship threatened or your normal Sunday routine like questioned or, or broken in some way. But this is what would happen. If you had a wall that was torn down, your religious center was never not protected anymore. And so the place you went to worship, the place you meant to do sacrifices, everything would be in question. You wouldn't be sure, like, can I go there? Can I not? Are there invaders? Is something going to happen? And, and you can play that out in a bunch of other areas of society. The economy was questionable. You're like, I, I don't know if I can trade or I don't know if I can have my business. Is this going to be over tomorrow? Like, you just don't know. And then you play it out, make it more personal. What about your own family? If you know that the walls are broken down, maybe you live near one of those rubble pieces and you're like, uh, I, I don't know if I can go to bed with both eyes closed tonight because I don't know if, if there's going to be an invasion or a siege or something's going to happen overnight or a natural disaster and we're just not protected. And walls, when they get broken down, cause us to think that way, cause us to think in, in terms of, am I going to be okay? How, how do I rebuild if that's really what protects me? And I think... When something had been destroyed for 150 years like this wall, think about how many generations went by with those very same fears. Am I going to be safe? Am I going to be protected? Am I, can I really do anything of value? Can I, can I live confidently that I'm going to be around for the next 10 years? You just didn't know. It was all in question and all uncertain, all because the walls were torn down. And what Nehemiah does in verse four is something that we rarely do in response to a broken down wall in our life. 
He simply gets the news. He kind of takes inventory of what's happening. He sits down. He weeps. He mourns. He fasts. And then he prays. See, when I get angry, the first thing I do is go vent to a friend over text message or, or let my wife know that, oh man, I'm really angry about this or this situation happened. Some of us go right to social media and we, we list our rants or if the restaurant ticked us off, we go on Yelp and just blast them and hope that we get a ton of likes or, or that one star review will kind of rise to the top, right? We've all had bad experiences like that. And this was even more serious when something was going on in a nation nearly a thousand miles away. Nehemiah doesn't go to say, okay, let's, uh, let's write down a plan. I'm going to go there. I'm going to figure it out. That does happen. But the first thing that happens is he mourns, he fasts, and he prays. We can learn from that response. There's something unique that Nehemiah teaches us about being a follower of the way of Jesus and, and a, a disciple of him. I love what Dave Kraft says, he's a writer and a theologian, writes this about disciples. A disciple is a person who is dissatisfied with the way things are. Person who's dissatisfied with the way things are. He has a God-given burden, a vision, a call to see something different. I love that. We don't use that word burden very much anymore. It's kind of an old churchy revival term. And if you grew up in church, maybe you're familiar with the word burden, but burdens essentially, think of it as a holy weight on your life, kind of a a pressing on your soul, a calling, a, a motivation to live differently because you've been convicted or are passionate uniquely about something, often something that's on God's heart. Think of a burden that way. And, and Nehemiah's response indicates that he had a burden that there was something heavy on his heart because when he reads and hears that, that the, the walls of Jerusalem have been torn down, this brings Jerusalem, you see it in verse three, great trouble and disgrace. Not only is there shame that these walls have gone unattended for 150 years, but there's also trouble. There's also uncertainty. There's also problems that can arise because the walls I've been broken down. Its gates themselves have been burned with fire. And Nehemiah's response to that is, is prayer, is a burden, is being moved by the heart of God and crying. And that's not something I think of as very manly, if I was honest. Like, come on, man, like get some tools and go do some stuff. But Nehemiah doesn't do that. He just weeps, he fasts, and he prays. How many situations in your life would be different if that's how you responded? If you waited, if you maybe fasted and said, God, I'm going to withhold from something so I can pursue something, and you prayed or asked others to pray. See, often our responses are not marked by that kind of dissatisfaction and that kind of burden. And I think it highlights an important truth. And if you've, again, followed Jesus for any number of years, you already understand this. You already live with this. But for some of us, this is a new thought. And for me, when I look at this story, I see, okay, Nehemiah, I, I, that's not how I would have responded. But I think this is why. is because when you think about the scriptures, you journey through the story of God. Here's what we know, that God doesn't want to give us a better life. He wants to give us a burdened life. God doesn't want to make your life just incrementally better. Maybe you do. (laughs) Maybe there's things in your life you do want to get better. And that's not saying they're not holy or they're not good. It's it's good to have a nice lawn. It's good to have a nice car. It's, It's not necessarily bad to live where you live or to have the job and make the money you do. That's not necessarily what I think 
this, this story points out, but God isn't just after that. God has got way bigger dreams for you than just your happiness and your comfort and your security. God doesn't want to give you a better life. He wants to give you a burdened life, a life that weeps for the things he weeps for, a life that is moved to action by the things that he takes action on, a life that just responds to even ordinary situations differently, a life that just when you line it up against someone who doesn't follow Jesus looks different, a life that is really being changed and transformed by the Holy Spirit. And and this kind of life is what so many of you have experienced. So many of you in the last two years, I've got to hear some of your story. I've got to, to share with you and walk with you through painful situations. And, and you don't live just to get a better life. You want a burdened life, a life that's passionate, a life that's different, a life that's transformed and is for the things of God, not just for your own comfort or security or happiness and Many of you know, back in January, we kind of stumbled into a partnership with a ministry called Hand to Hand. And I look around the room, so many of you have, have served packing meals, and we serve about 38 kids at a local elementary school. And it's been one of the best things that we've ever done because it's helped us to think more burdened versus better. See, we could do, like, we could raise that same amount of money and put that same amount of time and, and maybe buy some new chairs or buy a new carpet squares or whatever. Like we could just go through and make this more comfortable, but we haven't. And it's been a decision to give towards something that is burdened on the heart of God. Children who are in need, who go home on the weekend with no food. That's what God's heart is after, not better chairs. And so as we've journeyed through that over the last six months, and we all know school's ending in a week, praise the Lord. But as we journeyed through the last six months, uh, just a couple weeks ago, someone who's on our delivery team, who every other week delivers meals to the school and, and prays over the school and does all that stuff, came up to me and said, John, something crazy happened on Thursday. Now, as a pastor, just to let you in on my world, when you hear something crazy happen on Thursday, I never think that's good. I don't know about if your kids bring that to you and like, hey, mom, something happened on Thursday. Like, I never assume the best. That's my own problem. That's my own thing I'm working through. Uh, but I just haven't worked through it fully yet. But he came up to me and said, something crazy happened on Thursday. I was like, okay, what, what happened at this elementary school that we're serving on Thursday? Tell me. He said, I was going through the lockers and we hand place every meal, 38 meals into these kids' lockers. So I was going through the lockers and, and I had something happen that's never happened before. Again, I never think the best when someone says something like that. I'm like, okay, tell me more. And so he said, I just got these, these feelings. I got this prompting, if you will, to pray very specific prayer requests over these lockers. He said like really detailed stuff, like this person is really struggling at home with this sibling and this is how old this person is. Like really laser specific stuff, stuff he would not know, stuff we don't even have access to that information. Like, uh, and I was like, okay. And he's like, and this other one, I just, I sense that at home, their parents are about to get divorced and I want to pray directly for her. And, and then I went to another locker and the same thing happened. I went further down the hall and something else happened just like that. And, and he's telling me this with tears in his eyes. He has a burdened life. He has understood what Nehemiah understands, that when you see the walls torn down, when kids go hungry on the weekend in our neighborhoods, we don't have to just ask God, could you just make it better? We just ask, ask give us a burden. That's the kind of prayer 
that we need to pray. That's what that guy understood as he's walking through the lockers. That's the kind of life he's now living. He's burdened. And we're praying right now about taking on another school. And that came out of the exact same thing, a burden from, from someone else who just said, we might need to do more. And as I think about that, and, and so again, so thankful to those of you who give to the center church because we can't do that without you. That stuff doesn't just happen. It's your generosity week on week that allows ministry like that to take place. And just this past week, I actually got a survey from one of the parents. And they don't, we don't get a ton of them back, but hand-to-hand just kind of sends them out and asks, hey, could you send some back? And this mom's name is Heather, and she writes, we have a second grader at Oriole Park who receives hand-to-hand meals. She said, it was a tremendous help this year. Our family is currently living in a motel and struggling greatly, but we aren't able to use food banks because they need a mailing address and we don't have one. And I read that and just kind of sat with that for a minute in my office. And I was like, I can't even picture that being me. I don't know about you. I just, I can't even wrap my mind around those realities that Heather is facing with her second grade daughter. But I know that because someone had a burden, we're doing something about it. And we are a part of seeing God transform, not just a kid's life, but a school, a community, a place that God's heart is broken for. And that's the kind of burden that Nehemiah carried. And as you read on, you can see some of his prayer. I want to just read this, and I want you to understand some of the pieces in it. And then I want to share just one more thing before we close. In verse 5, Nehemiah says, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer Your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. Did you catch that? Day and night. The burden was not a momentary thing. It was lasting. It was permanent. As you keep going, I confess the sins we Israelites, he's including himself and my father's family have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying... If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people, which Israel was, are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeem by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Nehemiah says, I was a cupbearer to the king. Cupbearer is not the most important. It was important, but not the most important. The only difference between Nehemiah and everyone else who'd walked around the walls of Jerusalem or heard about this problem for 150 years was a burden. He was moved and did something about it. He took action. Maybe you're saying, okay, I understand. I, sure, I don't want a better life. Sure, John, I'll take a burden life. Like, what does that look like? I think here's where we start. And if you're looking for a next step, this is your next step. You have to start by taking inventory of your walls. Let me say that one more time. Take inventory of your walls. God will never redeem and fix something that you don't acknowledge is broken. That's just kind of how he works. 
He may be gracious and do something you haven't asked, but the way he moves when walls are broken down is you at first saying, God, I confess this. Did you catch Nehemiah do that? Even on behalf of people he didn't know. My father's family, this entire nation full of people I'm not personally connected with. I confess we've, been, we've turned against you. We are wicked in your sight. He confesses, he takes inventory. And so for you, I think the Holy Spirit speaks in a whole bunch of ways. So I'm not gonna pretend that this is your only step, but maybe for you this week, it's setting aside some time and taking some inventory. And really, if I thought about it, there's kind of five domains. Scripture kind of addresses when it comes to this issue that we can take inventory of. Number one, mental. Number two, physical. Number three, relational. Number four, financial. And number five, spiritual. And if you're a note taker, I wanna give you five questions to wrestle with. And we're gonna provide these on social media as well. So question number one, here we go. Are my thoughts honoring to God? In that mental domain, when I think about my walls of my life, are they, are they being built up? Or are they torn down right now? That's a question to wrestle with. Are my thoughts honoring to God? Number two, am I treating my body as a temple of the Holy Spirit? The, the area of that physical domain, am I treating my body as a temple of the Holy Spirit? Number three, relational. Are my relationships reconciled and healthy? Can you look across your life right now at, the, at the, all the people you're connected to? Could you walk in a room and be at peace with them? Are my relationships reconciled and healthy? Am I, am I living the kind of life God wants me to live in my relationships with other people? Number four, financial. Am I stewarding God's money with care? Catch stewarding. Remember, God's given you money to steward. You didn't earn the money you have. If God has all the resources, that means he's given you some to steward, to leverage for his kingdom's purpose and for your own flourishing. Am I stewarding God's money with care? Number five, am I growing as a disciple of Jesus? Is my spiritual life taking steps? And maybe that step is setting aside some time for inventory. Maybe it's reaching out to a prayer partner. Maybe it's starting to give, maybe it's starting to serve, maybe it's asking God, God, give me a burden for this family or this relationship or this community or whatever it is. But ask, walk through those five questions and take some time this week to set aside some space and some environments in your life in which you can take inventory and watch God start to work on your walls. Watch God start to rebuild what's broken. Because again, you cannot fix yourself you cannot redeem yourself. You are not good on your own accord to make life the way it should be. Only one is, and that's Jesus within you, working and his Holy Spirit alongside of you. You don't have to do it on your own. And, and here's the truth. Can I just be super honest? If you try, and if I try to rebuild the walls of my life on my own, they will just continue to crumble. They will continue to be in ruin my brokenness will just beget more and more brokenness. And that's because that's not how I was designed. That's not how you are designed. Instead, if we say, okay, I've taken inventory. I know where my walls are broken down. God, I'm gonna give them to you. I'm gonna surrender them to you because it's only your gospel. It's only the good news of the kingdom of God, your grace at work in my life that can really change things and help me to rebuild. And we're gonna celebrate communion in just a moment. And communion, if it's anything, is a reminder of that, of that total and complete dependence on Jesus. That what we couldn't do for ourselves, 
eternal life, that salvation, the, the rescue we needed from our own sin and idolatry, Jesus has done that for us. And we celebrate and we remember because we quickly forget. And we quickly snap right back in on a Monday morning to doing everything on our own power and everything on our own merit. And that is not the way you and I were designed to live. And so I want to take just a moment to help you imagine something. If you could close your eyes for just a minute, we're going to pray. If you close your eyes for just a minute, I'm going to invite the band to come up as we're doing this. And, and I want you to think about, because later in the story of the Gospels in, in Matthew, just picture this if you can. This takes some imagination, but picture uh, Jesus centuries, maybe thousands of years later, standing over Jerusalem and weeping just like Nehemiah did. He looked over a city that was broken down, not, not like physically and not literally their walls were torn down because they had finally rebuilt, but spiritually, emotionally, mentally, physically, their, their walls were torn down and Jesus wept. And he didn't just weep because he was sad, he wept because he had a burden for people. And it led him to the cross. And you and I sit here today with the extension of the gospel to us because of that truth. And so maybe today your, your step is, is not just taking inventory, but it's saying, yeah, when I'm, if I'm honest, I've never surrendered my life to Christ. I've never fully laid my own dreams down. And, and I'm gonna do that today. And maybe Today, that is your next step. That is what God is laying on your heart to do. And I invite you to do it. And I'm gonna pray just a very simple prayer. And I'm actually gonna invite everybody in the room to pray this together as a reminder to many of us who are following Jesus that we need this grace fresh today. And so if you would just repeat out loud after me, say, Jesus, the walls of my life are broken down. And I need your grace to rebuild. Without you, I am truly hopeless. But in you, I have eternal and lasting hope. I lay down my life for you. And I take on your life for me. Make me clean. Help me to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, thank you. If you prayed that for the first time today, I'd love to just celebrate with you and, and meet you after this service. But I wanna lead us into a time of communion because this meal is not just uh, something to remember or something to, to fill your stomach at 10, 15 in the morning, but it's actually something to to kind of experience fresh that act of grace, that act of Jesus laying down his life for you and I and showing the ultimate demonstration of what God is like. And so as the band leads us into the song and we pray together that God would build our lives and his love would mark who we are, I would invite you just when you're ready, take a moment to reflect, take a moment to examine, but when you're ready to just go out the side of your aisle, take communion and then come back through the center because this may be the most important thing you do all day is just remember fresh that gift of grace that God is kind and good and ready to re-extend that as you rebuild. So let's celebrate, let's worship, let's reflect 
and let's take communion together when you're ready.